Okay, now we will continue with the Maha Satipatthana Sutta. Now we are we are discussing the last section on the Four Noble Truths. And so far we have taken the first Noble Truth and Last week we took the second noble truth. Now we're working from the Bodhapati printout. And we're at paragraph number 20. We're ready to start the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. Buddha begins by asking, and what is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering? It is the complete fading away and extinction of this craving, that is the craving which is the origin of suffering. It's forsaking and abandonment, liberation from it, detachment from it. Okay, that is the usual explanation of the third noble truth. And this definition of the third noble truth follows very simply and logically from the explanation of the second noble truth. The second noble truth says that craving is the cause or origin of suffering. So if one is to eliminate the effect, the result, which is suffering, then the only way to go about it is to eliminate the cause. Any attempt to just deal with the effect on its own terms, just by trying to make our life maybe more pleasant and more comfortable, is not going to get at the root cause of dukkha, of suffering, which is craving. So to eliminate the effect, one has to go and trace the effect to the cause. Find out the cause, eliminate the cause, and then we've eliminated the effect. It says, it is said in some of the commentaries that other religious teachers are somewhat like a dog whereas the Buddha is like a lion. Now, if somebody throws a stick at the dog, what does the dog do? It runs after the stick. <laughs> but if somebody throws a stone at a lion, it runs after the person who threw the stone. <laughs> so, other religious teachers, deal with, or other spiritual teachers, deal with attempts to taste over the effects to ameliorate the manifest forms of suffering. 
But the Buddha traces the problem right to the cause, and then like the lion who deals with the man <laughs> who threw the stone, the Buddha shows the way to remove the cause. And since the cause of suffering is craving, which in turn is backed upon, brought about through ignorance, therefore the Buddha teaches that the extinction of suffering lies in the complete fading away and extinction of craving. And when I was explaining the noble truth of the origin of suffering, I explained that we can understand how craving is the cause of suffering in two ways. One is the manifest, you say the manifest psychological level. At this level, we see that as long as there is craving in the mind, then there will be unhappiness, always selling that craving. When we don't have what we desire, then there is the misery of not getting what we want, of yearning and dreaming and hoping and wishing and struggling to get what we desire. When we have it, when we have what we want, then there's the worry, anxiety, fear that we're going to lose what we are holding on to with attachment. Then, when we are separated from the object of our desire, then there comes sorrow, grief, misery, pain, and so on. So this is something which is immediately obvious to us. If we look at our own minds, at our own experience, we can see how craving brings all of these different types of suffering. And so, conversely, in regard to the cessation of suffering, we can understand that when craving has been uprooted, then there is no experience suffering, no sorrow, misery, and grief. Without craving, there's no yearning, hankering to get what we don't have. In regard to our possession, what we do have, without craving, there's no clutching onto them, no anxiety about losing them. And when we do lose what we have, because there's been no attachment, no clinging to them, then there's no sorrow, no grief. Okay, that is one level we can call the manifest or psychological level. But then there was this other level that I spoke about, which comes out when craving is spoken of as 
which is in paragraph 19, it is that craving which gives rise to rebirth, tanha pono babhika. That is here we understand that craving is bringing about dukkha, the suffering or the unsatisfactoriness which is inherent in the five aggregates. And so as long as these five aggregates continue, the five aggregates that we cling to and hold to as myself, me, I, myself, then there is some dukkha even if it's not experienced as suffering, misery, grief but there's just a constant process of rising and passing away of feelings, perceptions, volitions, consciousness all just continuing from moment to moment sometimes happy, sometimes sad, sometimes experiencing pleasure, sometimes pain. But always there is this oppression by rising and passing away. And that is the deep meaning of dukkha, which is present whenever the five aggregates are present. And what brings these five aggregates into being from one life to another is the craving and ignorance which remain in the mind at the end of the previous lifetime. So, when that craving is completely uprooted and eliminated, Then, with the passing away of the enlightened one or the liberated one, there is no re-manifestation of these five aggregates. The process of rebirth, repeated becoming, comes to an end. And that is the complete cessation of, of suffering, the complete end of dukkha which is attained through the realization of the third noble Okay, now this is the explanation, the usual explanation of the third noble truth given by the Buddha. What we have just in the first paragraph of paragraph 20. But then, in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta only, we have this very long additional passage where the Buddha raises the question, he says, and how does this craving come to be abandoned? How does it cessation about 
Actually, I think the Pali says, and when this craving is abandoned, in regard to what is it abandoned? When it ceases, in regard to what does it cease? Then the Buddha gives the answer to his own question, just bringing in the very same text that he explained under the origin of suffering, just turning it around, explaining it in terms of cessation. Whatever in the world is of an agreeable and pleasurable nature, there its cessation comes about it should be, there it is abandoned, and there its cessation comes about. And then he says, and what is there in the world that is agreeable and pleasurable? Then the eye is agreeable and pleasurable, the ear, nose, tongue, body, and so on. And in regard to that, that is what is agreeable and pleasurable in the world. And regard to that, in regard to that, Craving comes to be abandoned. In regard to that, its cessation comes about. So we take these various classes. We have the five, the six sense faculties, the eye through the mind. Those are things that we ordinarily hold to through craving. And when craving is abandoned, then it has to be abandoned in regard to the six sense faculties. Then, the order is wrong here. Then there should be the six sense objects to come next. Sight, sound, smell, taste, tangibles, and mind objects. In regard to that, craving has to be abandoned. Then comes the six types of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, and so on. Then the six types of contact, six types of perception, six types of volition, the six types of craving, the six types of the taka or thinking, the six types of vichara or pondering. So all of these classes of phenomena, these are all pleasurable and agreeable things. And it's in regard to all of these that craving has to be abandoned. Okay, and just as I explained last week, I think the reason why the Buddha brings all of these items in here is to show that for the meditator who's practicing constantly satipatthana, practicing constant mindfulness, has to be always diligently watchful first to see how craving arises in regard to any of these things, any of the sense faculties, any of the sense objects, any of the types of 
experience of consciousness, feeling, perception, thought, and so on. This whole domain of sensory experience and inner mental processes, craving is latching on to all of this. And through very intense mindfulness, one has to be watching the mind to see how it grasps on to all of these objects and using the power of mindfulness one has to gradually wear away the craving that holds on to these different bases. Okay, and that takes us through to the end of the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. Any questions about this paragraph that I've just taken? Okay, then we'll move into the next the next paragraph, which introduces the fourth noble truth. This is the noble truth of the way or the practice leading to the cessation of suffering. And this is characteristic in the Buddha's method of teaching that whenever he introduces, first when he introduces a problem that's to be eliminated, he'll always show what has to be done to eliminate that problem. This is what he does in the first two noble truths. He begins by showing suffering as the root problem and craving as the cause of that problem what has to be eliminated to get rid of the problem. Then, in the third and fourth truth, he shows first the desirable goal, which is the cessation of suffering. Then he shows the means or method for attaining that goal, and that is the Noble Eightfold Path. And so he says, and what month is the noble truth of the way, the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering? It is just this noble eightfold path, namely right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Then having enumerated these eight factors of the path, next the Buddha explains each of these in turn, treating each one analytically. And these eight factors of the path are actually eight mental factors we call tetasikas eight factors of the mind. 
And each of these factors can be present in many different states of mind. But what is done in the practice of the Dhamma is to cultivate <coughs> these eight particular mental factors together in a particular way so that they combine their powers and by combining their powers they constitute a path or vehicle which takes one to the goal of the extinction of suffering. First, right view is the mental factor of wisdom or understanding. Usually we have many types of understanding. Whenever there is a proper understanding of anything, there is some function of wisdom, panya, being performed. Constantly in the mind, there is a mental factor called vitaka or sankapa, which means thinking or thought. And when this factor of thought, thinking, or purpose, actually vitaka or sankapa, means better it's the purposive aspects of thought, or the, you can say the intentional aspects. Then there are three mental factors which have the special role of restraining beat. One has the role of restraining feet, wrong feet. Another has the role of restraining wrong action, wrong bodily action. And the third has the role of restraining the pursuit of a wrong means of livelihood. These three mental factors are called the viratis, which means abstinences or restraint. And when these three mental factors are developed in as part of the Noble Eightfold Path, then they become the right speech, right action, and right livelihood of the Noble Eightfold Path. Then there is the mental factor of energy. When we want to accomplish any kind of goal, then we have to empower the mind in some way. That force, that mental factor which empowers the mind, that is called virya or energy. But there are different ways of empowering the mind. Most people, much of the time, empower the mind to accomplish unworthy goals, sometimes even immoral goals. Like you can say that, well, criminals who want to execute a crime have to use a great deal of energy. 
businessmen who wish to become multi-millionaires have to use a great deal of virya, energy, mental energy, to accomplish their goals. An artist who wants to create a great work of art has to use various energy. Anybody who wants to accomplish any kind of task has to use mental energy. But when this mental energy is directed towards the inward shaping of one's own mind, then it becomes a special type of effort. And when one is trying to shape the mind according to the Buddha's instructions on what kind of states are to be eliminated, what kind of states are to be cultivated, then that factor of energy becomes right effort. Okay, then the next factor is mindfulness, which is, you could say, the factor of awareness or attentiveness. And to accomplish any kind of action carefully or properly, to accomplish it well, one has to be very attentive, very mindful of what one is doing. Even a, to say, a pianist who's playing a piece of music, a dancer who's trying to execute, say, a ballet dancer who's trying to execute a dance with perfection, has to do it with a great deal of attentiveness or awareness of what he or she is doing. Now when the factor of awareness or attentiveness is applied to the contemplation of these four bases of mindfulness, the body, the feelings, states of mind, or mental objects, then it becomes the right mindfulness of the Noble Eightfold Path. Then there is a mental factor called one-pointedness or concentration. Again, to accomplish anything well, it has to be done with a great deal of concentration. If one is trying to solve a mathematical formula, one has to be concentrated on each step of the formula. If the concentration wavers, then one misses the sequence of steps and maybe has to start over again. If one is trying to train for some athletic performance, train and track or swimming, again the mind has to be very concentrated. If the attention wanders, then one loses track of what one is doing, then one can't reach perfection in what one's trying to accomplish. And so all of these tasks depend upon a high degree of concentration. 
And when this concentration is turned to focusing upon a particular object in order to collect together the powers of the mind and to deepen the level of awareness, then that constant mental factor of one-pointedness becomes the right concentration of the Noble Eightfold Path. So what the Buddha has done is to take eight functions of the mind, functions which can be present in any type of activity, and he's brought them together and shown how they are to be developed in a particular way so that they all combine their individual capacities, their individual potencies, and being directed in a particular way, they bring about the extinguishing of the defilement that keep us in bondage to suffering. It's somewhat like, you know, the magnifying glass, and if you want to start a fire, all the time we can have the sunlight coming down, and all the time we might have on our desk the magnifying glass and the piece of paper. But if we take the piece of paper and put it down, and we take the magnifying glass and hold it on a, hold it at a particular angle, then the rays of the sunlight get focused onto that paper so that they cause the paper to ignite and to burn up and flame. And so the Buddha has given us the teaching which is like a magnifying glass by which we can focus these regular mental functions which are like the rays of sunlight so that by focusing and converging upon each other the power gets combined and they burn up the roots of suffering. Okay, and the sequence begins with right view. Right view, the Buddha places first, because right view is like the eye which has to guide, which has to guide us as we're walking the path. If one has the other factors without right view, then one can be developing many wholesome qualities. But these wholesome qualities that we're developing won't be part of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. It's right view, samadhiti, which gives us the understanding of what is the problem of our life to be faced and what is the cause of that problem, what is the solution, 
and what is the means to achieve that solution. And so the Buddha explains when he asks what is right view, he explains that it is the knowledge or understanding of suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering. That is, in order to walk the Noble Eightfold Path, one has to have an understanding of these basic principles which underlie the path. One has to see that the problem to be overcome through the practice of the path is the problem of suffering. One has to know that that suffering originates from craving. One has to know that to eliminate suffering, one has to uproot craving. And one has to know that the Noble Eightfold Path is in fact the means to overcome suffering. This is somewhat like if one wishes to travel from, say, Kandy to Bhattakalor, one doesn't just get in the car and just go driving in any direction. But first you need the map. You need a map and you have to study the map and see this road goes from Kandy so far. Then one has to turn right here, then turn left there, go so many kilometers on this stretch of the road, then turn here. And so, if you have the map and you study the map, then you can move in the right direction. If you just get in the car and start driving whichever way the road leads, then maybe you will wind up in Matara or <laughs> Colombo. <laughs> okay, so first, one needs right view. Then the second factor, right what is called right thought, as I said earlier, actually means, the Pali word sankapa, actually means purpose or intention. It is the directive aspect of thought. And so right thought is the thought or intention of renunciation, the thought of non-ill will or loving kindness and the thought of harmlessness or compassion. That is, these are three directions that one has to give to the mind on the basis of right view or right understanding. I think right thought follows quite naturally from right view since when one has the right understanding that craving is the origin of suffering then the mind will turn towards renunciation which doesn't mean that everybody who follows the Noble Eightfold Path has to become a monk or a nun but it means that through understanding the truth that craving is the origin of suffering, then the mind turns in the direction 
of renunciation. So instead of making it one's objective in life to try to gain as much as possible, instead one tries to live as simply as possible to remain content with just the basic necessities of life. and to get along in as simple a manner as possible. Then through understanding that other beings also are subject to suffering, then one develops the thought of harmlessness and goodwill towards them, wishing that they will be well and happy and free from suffering. Then, when the mind takes this direction towards renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness towards others, then these thoughts have to become embodied in our conduct. So in that way, right thought gives rise to the next three factors of the path, right speech, right action and right livelihood. By means of right speech, one refrains from these four types of unwholesome speech, that is, lying, slander, harsh speech, and idle chatter or gossip, frivolous speech. Through right action, one refrains from killing or taking life, refraining from stealing or taking what is not given, and refrains from sexual misconduct. And then through right livelihood, one gives up any type of wrong livelihood and one supports oneself by a right means of livelihood. Elsewhere in the suttas, the Buddha has given various examples of wrong livelihood. Basically, it's any type of livelihood which involves inflicting harm and suffering on others, dealing in weapons, intoxicants, slaves, animal trade, and so on. Okay, now these three factors of the path, speech, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, these form the group which is called sila, morality or virtue. Then on the basis of these three factors, in the next stage, one comes to the development of the mind, which consists of three, the next three factors of the path, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right effort, the Buddha explains, is four types of effort. Basically, we have two types of mental states. 
there are unwholesome mental states and wholesome mental states. The unwholesome mental states of the defilement, greed, anger, ignorance, and all of their offshoots. Now, sometimes these mental states, unwholesome mental states, have not yet arisen in the mind, but are trying to get into the mind, trying to push their way into the mind. When that happens, then one has to make the effort, make the exertion, not to allow them to come into the mind. That is the effort to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. But then, from time to time, these unwholesome states do come into the mind. In that case, one has to make a special effort to eliminate them, to cultivate in their place some type of wholesome mental state which will push them out and eliminate them. Then there are the wholesome mental states, virtuous mental states. Those types of states, if they have not yet arisen, one has to make an effort to arouse them, then when they have arisen, then one has to make a repeated effort to cultivate them, strengthen them, stabilize them, and to bring them to perfection. So that is right effort. In this case, right effort is not a physical effort, so it involves some physical energy, but it's the effort in cultivating the mind. Then right mindfulness shows us how the mind is to be cultivated, for what particular emphasis one is to exert in cultivating the mind. And that is the contemplation of the four foundations of mindfulness. Contemplating the body, feeling uh, states of mind and mental objects. And then in the eighth, as the eighth step, the Buddha explains right concentration. This is the one-pointedness of mind which is to be gained by cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness or some other object which will lead to concentration. These are the four jhanas. I won't go over the full formulas right now since I've done so earlier and also it would become a detailed study in itself. Now these last three factors <laughs> these last three factors of the Noble Eightfold Path 
right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, these are grouped together as constituting the samadhi or concentration sector, sector of the Noble Eightfold Path. And when these three factors are cultivated together, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, then through the power that they accumulate, they bring the arising of insight or wisdom, which turns right view, which is the conceptual understanding of the Four Noble Truths, becomes transformed into direct insight or direct realization of the Four Noble Truths. And with this, right view no longer becomes just the intellectual understanding of the Four Noble Truths, but it becomes intuitive, direct, absolutely certain, personal knowledge, personal realization of the Four Noble Truths. And this is Panya, wisdom. And with the arising of that direct insight into the Four Noble Truths, then all clinging or craving, all ill will and anger, all harmfulness and cruelty are eliminated and replaced by perfect renunciation, perfect goodwill, perfect compassion, that is, by right thought, which is now elevated to a higher status. And so the right view and right thought that arise on the basis of samadhi, concentration, those two constitute the panya, or wisdom section of the Noble Eightfold Path. And so we can see that the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path fit into what are called right mindfulness and right concentration. These three fit together into the concentration sector of the path and right view and right thought which follow right concentration. That is the personal intuitive realization of the Four Noble Truths and the mind which has been freed from the defilement by wisdom, they come as the Tanya section of the Noble Eightfold Path.
Okay, and so that the Buddha sums it up and he says, this month is called the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering. Okay, do we have any questions on, on this month? Any questions on the noble ritual? Now the Buddha is not just explaining the Noble Eightfold Path theoretically here, but this we have to remember, so we might have forgotten that this is part of the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. So this is the, the Four Noble Truths explained as a means of developing right mindfulness. And so a means of arousing insight. And so now the Buddha applies his formula for the developing of insight to the contemplation of the Four Noble Truths. He says, so he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, internally contemplating mind objects as mind objects, externally internally and externally in regard to the Four Noble Truths. And the means in which, by which this is applied, we have to remember now that we have a meditator who has gone through the seven factors of enlightenment and now has the seven factors of enlightenment working with a great deal of strength. So he's at a very advanced degree of contemplation. And with the power of the seven factors of enlightenment, he turns to investigate his experience in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So as he is contemplating the arising and passing away of the various mental and physical phenomena, he realizes that all of these mental and physical phenomena are aspects of these five aggregates, these Panchupadana Khandas. When he contemplates the body, he realizes that this is the aggregate of form, which is part of the noble truth of suffering. When he contemplates feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, Whatever he contemplates, he sees as part of the five aggregates. And he understands that everything within the five aggregates is part of the truth of dukkha or suffering. As he's observing, contemplating his experience, whenever he sees any kind of craving or clinging or attachment arise, he'll realize that this craving or clinging is 
part of the truth of the cause of sutta, the origin of suffering. And he will understand that to be free from suffering, he has to remove and abandon that craving. That is the third noble truth. And when he contemplates in his mind and sees the eight factors of the noble path that work, when he sees that he has right view, right thought, that his speech, conduct, and livelihood are restrained, that he has effort, mindfulness, and concentration, then he'll realize that the Noble Eightfold Path, or the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, are present in him, and that this is the way to the cessation of suffering. Okay, and so we apply the whole formula to the, to the four noble truths. Okay, and that takes us to the end of this section, and that monk is how a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in regard to the four noble truths. Okay, then we come back now to the wheel booklet to wrap up the very end of the sutta. Now the Buddha has actually completed the explanation of all the four foundations of mindfulness. But now he's going to add to the sutta a special promise or guarantee to show how important and how effective this teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness is. He says, we're now on page 26 of the Wheel Booklet. He says, truly, monks, Whoever practices these four foundations of mindfulness in this manner for seven years, then one of two fruits may be expected by him. Either he gains highest knowledge here and now, highest knowledge, anya, that means the attainment of arhanship, the knowledge of the cessation of suffering. Or if there is some remainder of clinging left in him, then he achieves the state of non-return, the state of anagami, which means that he will take rebirth somewhere in the drama world or the pure abode without ever returning to the lower world and there he will reach the final goal of Nibbana. 
So the Buddha begins with the maximum amount of time. If one develops the four foundations of mindfulness in this manner for seven years, which means not that one practices an hour or two hours a day for seven years, but one has to be constantly developing this in an unbroken manner for seven years. <coughs> then even for those who are very slow and who have very dull faculties, who grasp things very with a great deal of difficulty, then for them seven years and then one is bound to be either arhatship or non-returning. But for those who are a little bit brighter, they don't have to do it for seven years. If they do it for six years, it's enough. Or if they're still a little brighter, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, then one of two fruits could be expected. Either full attainment of arhanship or the state of non-returning. Then let alone one year, if anyone practices the four foundations of mindfulness continually, without a break, for seven months, six months, five months, four, three, two months, one month, or even just two weeks, then one of these two fruits is guaranteed. Then let alone half a month, if any person practices in this way the four foundations of mindfulness, even for only one week, then one of the two fruits is to be expected. Either highest knowledge here and now, or the state of non-returning. Of course, there have been some who have not even had to do the practice for a full week, there have been some who have reached the final goal right on the spot. But they, they are very rare. And so the Buddha says, at the end, he repeats the very statement with which he began the sutta. He says, because of this, that is because of the fact that by practicing in this way one can achieve the goal because of this it is said that this is the only way monks again I don't agree with the explanation for the translation of the only way I take it that this is the direct way or the say the one way street for the purification of being for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. Thus spoke the Blessed One, and the monks were satisfied and the proof of his words, not work, words. <coughs> and that's the conclusion of the Maha Satipatthana Sutta. <laughs>
Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay, if there are any questions now, anything in the whole sutra. <laughs> Took us quite a long time to get through. <laughs> it's only twenty-seven pages in the wheel booklet, plus six photocopy pages, about thirty-three pages, and it took us how many? Sixteen. Oh, yes. Excuse me. Is it? <laughs> okay, then this I think will be the ending of this series of talks. Perhaps after one or two months then I'll start another series. One problem though is that we've been using up almost all the wheel booklets on sutras that can be that are good for giving talks on. There are very few that are left. But I'll find some something to give talks on. What I would suggest is that those who come to the talk Give a postcard, a self-addressed postcard, with your name, with your name and address, to either Mr. Telwatcher or Mr. Nantanava. Then, when we're ready to start again, a week or two in advance, then they'll send out the postcard so that you're informed that the class will begin again. Then you don't have to be calling off to ask. Okay, then we will. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.